This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is a Consumer VC podcast where we discuss the innovation within consumer and venture capital. If you're enjoying this podcast, I highly recommend checking out my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Please note that all content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Thank you, Daniel Galati, for introducing me to our guest today, Mike Salguero. Mike is the founder and CEO of ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed beef free-range organic chicken, humanly raised pork, and wild-caught seafood directly to your door. ButcherBox is a unique brand that we're covering on this show since it's actually not venture-backed. Mike bootstrapped it all the way to $600 million in sales, which is pretty phenomenal. Previously, Mike was a CEO at Custom Made that was venture-backed. So we discussed some of the differences between venture-backed and bootstrapped businesses when he knew that ButcherBox was going to be bigger than he intended, how to find businesses based on the lifestyle you want to lead, and ButcherBox's growth journey, which is pretty phenomenal. Without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Great. Doing well. Thanks. So want to start from the very beginning, or at least the beginning of your custom-made journey. So, you're, that, that was, um, so, so you bought custom-made um, initially. What was the premise behind the company? Why did you end up purchasing it? And, w- and what were you kind of l- looking to achieve or the opportunity that you thought? Yeah, my uh, co-founder and I were both working in real estate and uh, really had a dream of going into business together. And in 2008, um, he was buying a custom coffee table and stumbled across this website, custommade.com, and bought a beautiful coffee table from a woodworker in Maryland. And during the process of purchasing this coffee table, the, the maker's like, I make all of my money from this website custom made and I pay $35 a year for my subscription. And so Seth, my buddy and I, two real estate guys were like this, we call it a shack in Manhattan. This is like a shack in Manhattan. Um, you know, great SEO, great foot traffic, lots of business happening. And what it needs to be is like repivoted and, uh, we, we need to spruce it up. So this was 2008. The website was being run by a webmaster um, who owned the website. It was making $35,000 a year in sales. 
And I reached out to him and was like, we'd like to purchase the website. And uh, he didn't respond to me. Um, a few months later, I uh, was let go from my job working as a real estate developer. And I wanted to get late, let go. I was trying to get laid off so I could collect unemployment and start a company. And, uh, you know, he within like a week of me being laid off, he wrote back and was like, I'll sell. This was 2008 when uh, the world was kind of collapsing um, in terms of uh, uh, the financial world was collapsing. Um, and we ran around town with a logo on a cell phone and went out to raise $500,000. 140,000 of which was to purchase the website. And then the rest was going to be to like pivot the website to um, new, new technology. So people should be able to log in, manage their own profile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we had no web experience whatsoever. Uh, I was 26 at the time, so no running a business experience whatsoever. Uh, in fact, the first mentor I found, um, I literally was like, what, uh, what do I do? Like, uh, what does a CEO do all day? Um, and we got started and, uh, you know, that, that was a seven and a half year journey. Um, we raised about $30 million of financing. We did five rounds of financing. Um, the, the third round is when we finally got some VCs involved. Um, Google led, uh, Google and first round capital led, a a, a round. And then six months later, another firm that um, didn't get in in the first round. It's always good to have a firm that didn't get in in the first round so that they're like hungry to do another round. Um, they wanted in. So then we raised, you know, four million. And then uh, a year after that, we raised 18. Um, and so very heavily, like heavily financed. Um, and the business didn't work. Um, you know, uh, the original business was, which was a subscription business for woodworkers, probably would have worked if we had uh, not spent money as quickly as we did. But we, um, when we decided that we wanted to raise venture, we went out looking for venture capital, and everyone's like, "No, like woodworking business, no way. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. That's not transformational." And then we, uh, w we started talking about the potential of it being a marketplace, like where you as a customer could post something that you want and makers could bid on it. And literally, as soon as we said the word marketplace, like everyone wanted in our deal. Uh, this was 2011. Um, you know, it was uh, Airbnb and Uber and kind of this, this world of like a two-sided marketplace was like really hot and people didn't want to miss out on the, the, the next deal. So um, we ended up, um, yeah, so we ended up raising a bunch of money, uh, I mean, it didn't go well. What we what we were really good at was selling people on our vision um, without product market fit. And, uh, you know, it was like pushing a boulder up the hill. Like, we'd always be like, oh, we need to get to this milestone. And we'd like totally miss it. And then like, we need to get to this one. And we totally miss it. And then our board is like, it must be a product problem. It must be an engineering problem. It must be a marketing problem. And so little by little, we went around the company and um, had to let a lot of people go uh, and just tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to make it work. And it didn't work. Uh, so ultimately, we had a venture bank. We did a friendly foreclosure where they foreclosed on the asset. My co-founder then um, did a workout with them. Uh, he still runs the company today. Custommade.com is now just a jewelry site and they do all the work. There's no like maker piece. It's like, if you want an amazing engagement ring that is totally custom and half the price that you normally pay, you go to Custommade and they can do that for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually in it 
now an investor in custom-made. Um, I'm still rooting for custom-made. I'm rooting for my co-founder to turn it into the business we always thought it would be. Um, but I left in, when the foreclosure thing happened. I and about 50 employees left. I was planning on taking like 100 days off, and I ended up taking the weekend off and then starting ButcherBox. And when I started ButcherBox, uh, I was... Um, okay with it being a hobby business like my vision for the business i think entrepreneurs like before you start a company you should like think out three years and what does your life look like my vision for the company was that it was a hobby that i was just um you know i was in argentina at a coffee shop and yeah i was looking at my numbers then i closed my laptop and go about my day that did not turn out to be the case um once we launched ButcherBox, um it really just like the snowball just started gaining momentum which is a very different uh experience for me than the one I had been living for eight years at CustomAid. So during CustomAid, I mean, you, you mentioned how you pivoted the business from a subscription to a marketplace business, which a marketplace business, you're taking a, a percentage a percentage off the sale. Did you pivot to marketplace once you, you got word that VCs were interested in marketplaces or like what and, and you wanted to raise from from VC so badly? Um, or what was kind of like the initial reasoning behind actually pivoting that business? We had uh, subscribers, right? And so we were calling new potential subscribers every day, like sending them emails and calling them and trying to get them to sign up for our site. And the biggest complaint we got was like, well, how do I know there's any work on that website? And so we created this thing called the job board. And the job board was like, uh, like almost like a bulletin board. So people could post like... I live in Albany. I'm looking for a custom bookshelf. I have my budget's $2,500. This is kind of what I'm thinking. Here's a photo. Like, so we, we built out that the ability for people to do it, but really it was so that we could point to the maker to it and say like, Hey, look, there are jobs in your area. You should sign up so you can bid on it. And then when I was in a meeting after we, it, it, it was the summer of no, we called it like after we had been just told no by everybody. I was in this meeting and I was like, pull up the job board. We had just launched it. And you could like, literally, we, we set it so that you could like see the jobs rolling in, like it would refresh all the time. So uh, you, we, we literally are in this meeting and it's like job. And I'm like, all we have to do is stand in between that and this transaction and we can be the largest marketplace for custom stuff. And I swear, as soon as I said the word marketplace, people are like, marketplace? I'm in. Wow. Wow. And, and of course, not a listing of a... Marketplace that would that that kind of word um, uh, using that yeah so 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 then like we raised money against the vision of creating marketplace and then we launched the marketplace and once we launched the marketplace it started to like show signs of it potentially working and then that's when that like other investment came in six months later um, and you know it just kind of snowballed from there and in your mind in terms of why the model you thought worked for VC funding? Is that because you just thought that the opportunity was was so huge that it made sense for VC? The, here's the thing about VC. Like you, if you think about if so, if you're an entrepreneur and you're like, you're, you're in it, right? And you're 28 and you, you know, you don't really know what you're doing, right? <clears throat> what are all the messages that the market is showing us? You go on TechCrunch. I bet if we went on TechCrunch today, the first five articles are about someone who raised money. Uh, you what? go to Entrepreneur Magazine, same thing. Um, you watch on TV, Shark Tank. Uh, there is a constant stream of information that tells entrepreneurs, especially tech entrepreneurs, that the only way that they can be successful is to raise a ton of money. And that is not accurate. Like That is not the, the truth. 
there are way more businesses out there, entrepreneurs out there, who went the path of not raising money and have like their own business that is like they can do what they want, they can have the lifestyle that they want. There's like plenty of reasons to not raise money. And in our first company, I mean, if we had just stayed at the friends and family or the angel round, like we needed to raise money to like buy the $140,000 website. But if we had just stayed at kind of that amount rather than being like, oh, everyone else is raising venture, we should raise venture. Um, we would have we done great. Um, but instead, we got enamored with this idea of uh, raising venture. And um, it was a big mistake. Uh, and, you know, like, look, I'm looking back on it. I mean, I'm so grateful that people gave me $30 million to <laughs> blow through uh, and learn a ton of lessons. And like, you know, I, I, I'm super grateful for that. So, uh, but I think that, you know, I, I get on podcasts and I write about this. Like, I think one of the biggest lies that, um, entrepreneurs are taught is that you need to raise money in order to be successful. That's not true. Um, now some businesses, like if you're, you know, if you're doing chat GPT, like, sure, you need to raise money. If you're trying to put a rocket on the moon, okay, go raise money. Um, but if you're trying to build like a website that is a subscription-based business, there are plenty of ways to not raise money and to still have a great business on your hands. What were some of the downsides that you saw from raising money in terms of maybe um, engaging with with VCs or just your own just your own experience? Well, I I wouldn't put that the business didn't work on them. Although, like they bought into the marketplace concept, so when the marketplace concept wasn't really working, like they we weren't about about to roll back to a subscription, right? On the positive side, you've got uh, people who have a lot of experience looking at a lot of different stuff who can be helpful every once in a while. Like they have good insights every once in a while. On the negative side, you've got a board member who like may have read the deck before the meeting, maybe. Um, they've got a ton of deals that they're in. They're trying to like generate new business and they frankly don't have a lot of time for like giving you the insights that... Um, you you might need and so you, you know they come in and they're like the button should be yellow you're like okay i mean we already tested it and this color works and they're like i just think it should be yellow or like why does why does this page look like this it should be like that and you're like okay um now you know granted like usually what happens is like your board is really great to start with and then when the numbers aren't going well is when things get a little heated and toxic um and, you know, for us, I mean, we, and again, I don't blame the VCs for this, but uh, we let our, you know, the whole founding team, our, the, the people who were there at the very beginning, like we let them go. We, we had to like up level our team and get better people and hire for resume and all these other things that like we, we were just kind of pushed into doing. Um, uh, so that's one. I mean, the second is dilution. I mean, by the end of custom made, I had like a decent salary and owned 4% of the company. And, you know, I kind of looked at that and was like, man, I could go get a CEO job. Not, not that anyone would hire me, but like I could go get a CEO, CEO job and have a decent salary and get 4% of the company. Like I worked myself into a job. Right. And so, and that's what happens. And, uh, I just like, I think that. I think most people start with like a business plan and like, I need to go raise money instead of a lifestyle plan. 
Like, what kind of lifestyle do you want to have? And then figuring out if like that makes the most sense, if, if raising money makes the most sense for the lifestyle you want to have. Having VCs is a lot more of like work. You have to like update them and talk to them and, you know, like answer their questions and they put in provisions that means that they like control you and can throw you out whenever they want and like all this other stuff that you have to like navigate. And it's, it's a lot harder. Like, I think, I think people are like, oh my God, I need to go raise money. And then they're like, oh, I raised money. Thank God. And it's like, that's when the hard work starts. That's when you have to like, you, you serve other masters than yourself and your customers. And uh, that can be tough. And so when I started ButcherBox, I was like, I'm not raising money. I don't care if the business is small. Um, I'm not raising money. And, uh, you know, I've been tempted many times. I've, I've gotten into some, I think I've, I've received one term sheet. I've gotten into some like really interesting conversations and we have continued to stay true to the, you know, Hey, let's do things a little differently and not raise money. Um, and honestly, I think like, you know, we've, we've had some pretty amazing growth and success. I don't think we'd be in business right now if we raise money. Given the timing, given like you know everything that happened, like I, I literally don't think we'd be in business. Why don't you think that? We started in 2015, so if I wanted to go raise money as a founder who had raised money, I probably could have raised several million dollars and like gotten going. 2017, Blue Apron goes public in the summer of 2017. Their stock price starts at like 140 dollars, and within three months, it's at like 35 dollars or 40 dollars. Just eroded all the value before the people could get out of the lockout period. So basically money just dried up. Like all like there was so much money in box subscription. Blue Apron had done like a um uh a 2 billion dollar valuation raise right before going public and like the money just dried up immediately. And so what happened was like plated and green chef and you know you name it they all just kind of like got sold or went under. Um and so that would have been us. Like we we would have been in 2017 trying to raise money. Like woohoo! Look at our numbers. This is great. We're losing money. Um, and you know, w- one of the great one of the great things that we had to do as a company was to come out of the gate making money on every transaction. So we had to think about scrappy ways to market rather than like let's just use Facebook. Um, and really, we stumbled into this like influencer marketing where we uh, reached out to people who followed a paleo diet, like dietitians or like the Whole30 diet, stuff like that. And these people wrote about us um, and uh, it worked. And we would not even be looking in that channel if we had gone the traditional route. Well, so, I mean, they say that, of course, like timing is everything and, and timing is everything, um, of course, when starting a business. And it seems like one of the timing part that you pounced on was the actual influencer marketing maybe starting to heat up. What were maybe three or four of the other parts of, as you look back and the success at ButcherBox where it is now, where are maybe like the three or four things that um, the timing just happened to be right and you're able to really take advantage of it. Well, I think the business in general. So we launched, uh, we launched on a uh, Kickstarter, uh, in September of, uh, 2015, the September issue of consumer reports was the case for grass fed beef. So I think just like, Oh, the timing of the whole business was like perfectly primed. Um, so there was that. Uh, influencers worked really well. We um, we were pretty early on Facebook video. So like in 2017 and 18, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, Zuckerberg slash Facebook were going to be prioritizing uh, video content 
like if you you started looking at your wall and you're like there's a lot of videos here um and so we just we just went into um doing videos kind of before other people did uh and so that was a nice little hole in the market for a bit how were you also thinking because because as you said like when you know one of it seems like one of your pieces of advice to entrepreneurs is when you think about starting a business think about the lifestyle you want to lead when starting a business and how with venture backed um you you kind of always have a boss uh so to speak which is your board um whereas you're not you aren't what were kind of like the lifestyle that you wanted to achieve and also i mean like how did you also approach it if the lifestyle maybe was more relaxed per se um than a um, then, then it was at custom made, at least when you were venture back to custom made. Um, I mean, shipping and dealing with a grass fed beef sounds like a pretty complex, pro- um, complex, um, supply chain and a complex, um, kind of product that you're actually delivering to consumers. How, what was kind of the start there? Yeah. So I wanted to run a hobby business, right? I, the, the idea was if I got a thousand subscribers and I, and I got a $20 profit from them. I'd have enough money to like pay for a few people and make my nut and like not have to work. That was the idea, right? So um, yeah, it seems complicated, but actually we found a cutting facility that cuts steaks and uh, steaks and pork and chicken because we started with beef, chicken, pork. Um, does all the cutting on one side of their business and then all the f- the frozen fulfillment on the other side of business. So they were like shipping out boxes uh, to, to our customers. So we had like one company handling the cutting and the fulfillment. Um, I outsourced customer service. Uh, I, you know, uh, I had a, a team that used to build websites for CrossFit gyms, uh, build the first website. Uh, we used code that was easily like, you know, um, it was like basically WordPress on top of Stripe um, so that like I could find uh, Odesk workers to be able to like, I guess Upwork now, um, to be able to like work on. Um, and so, yeah, no, it was like set up as a hobby. And then even down to like, so one, um, meat had not been sold on subscription, really. Like Omaha Steaks was the biggest player. Omaha does um, uh, gift giving. They don't do subscription, right? So uh, that was unique. And the reason why is because I wanted it to be a hobby business. Uh, two, we did this thing where it was a curated box. And what that meant was like we were going to ship you whatever we wanted to. You were going to give us $129 and we were going to ship you whatever we wanted to. Why did we do that? Well, we didn't have any money. So we didn't want to guess at inventory levels. Like we didn't want to be like, oh, how many ribeyes are going to be sold this month? We wanted to say like, here's a box. We're going to put together the box with the great stuff that we think that you'll want and ship it to you. And that, that worked. Well, how, how also did you think if it was, you know, meant to be a hobby business and meant to have, you know, this ideal where we have like a thousand customers that are, you know, a really kind of ro- small, but very uh, robust customer based you're making maybe 20 bucks um, um, on, on each customer. So you can have this incredible lifestyle business. When did that thinking begin to flip? Because now you're at, I think like 600 million. It's like a pretty large, um, business. When was that kind of thinking that, oh, wow, I actually have something here that is much larger than what I uh, uh, initially set out to be? It was like day two of the Kickstarter. Yeah, because it just started being pulled. Like we started being like, it just it just resonated. And it, it we, we started seeing a whole, I, I mean, within three days on Kickstarter, I think we're up to like 100 grand in, in purchasers. And uh, it was clear to me that we had something bigger on our hands than the hobby business that um, I had wanted to start. But like, even still, there's a way in which you can like, 
you know, so I, I, I tell people like, I, I think entrepreneurs should go and do like a visioning exercise where you think about your life three years in the future. And like, what are you doing? What does your day look like? Are you going to the gym before you go to work? Are you actually working from home? Are you hanging out with your kids? Blah, 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 blah. Like, what's your day? The whole thing. Describe it. Are you in an office? How many employees? Who are you interfacing with? Like, what do you do all day? Are you in your zone of genius? Are you doing the work that you love? Like everything, right? And oftentimes it's like, go for a walk, let your heart speak and like write down what your soul is telling you rather than like your head, get out of your head, write something down. I think business plans are very like in your head versus like, let your heart speak and see what happens in that plan. So my plan was like, I'm going to be in Argentina. I'm going to look at my numbers. It's going to be very hands off. I'm going to be able to travel a bunch, like all this stuff. And the reality is that like, yeah, the business wanted to be ButcherBox wanted to be bigger than I ever imagined. Um, but the plan, actually, if I if what I did when I looked at the plan three years in and said like, hmm, does this make sense? Um, the plan was like pretty spot on because I had built the business in a way in which it was still like a hobby, um, where. Obviously, it was bigger, more employees, and but because I hadn't raised venture and because we hadn't take on, taken on big expenses like a, our own distribution center, our own cutting facility, because I still believed in a model of like outsourcing to great people, et cetera, et cetera, like it, it, it ended up, it continued to be like what I intended it to be. No, that's also interesting how you how you also thought about your um, your own supply chain and actually kind of outsourcing that uh, and, and making sure that you're actually aren't aren't owning that to, um, again, be kind of a, um, for it to kind of be a, even though it's massive, but like more of like a hobby business in terms of, in terms of, um, how much time you have to spend per week in order to kind of keep it, uh, keep it going and keep it alive after like day one or day two of, of Kickstarter. And you realize that that this is actually a way bigger opportunity than you initially thought. What were also some of the ways you were able to, to to kind of capitalize on that? Well, uh, we just ran the influencer strategy for like two and a half years. Like that's all we did. Again, when you don't raise money, you don't have the luxury of like, let's try 97 channels and see which one works. Like you don't do that. You're like, you, you're looking for like very small, cheap signals that something's going to work. In our case, we had an influencer right during our Kickstarter campaign, write a tweet that was like, this is an interesting thing. And we saw a bunch of people sign up and it was by a bunch, I mean like 10 or seven or something. Right. So v- very few, but but it was enough. To, it was like a signal. It's like, ooh, influencer, this could work. And then we just like went after every influencer in uh, keto, paleo, whole thirty, like anything, anyone who is like on the cutting edge of go eat grass fed beef because it's healthier for you. We reached out to all of them, and within two years, we all of them had promoted us as a, you know, their choice for grass fed beef. How do you think about like the grass fed? um beef market like moving forward how do you think about from a gross perspective is there is there still like a lot of room for it to grow yeah grass-fed beef is and again we don't just do beef we do beef chicken pork bison lamb seafood like we do everything we're trying to compete against like you going to the back of the grocery store um uh and and we're trying to be in the grocery store so uh grass-fed beef is unfortunately not growing that fast um the recent data that we've seen uh projects a 4.5 percent increase year over year you know it's it we're still dealing with like two percent of the overall meat consumed in this country is grass-fed and um when you when you go to school on the way in which animals are raised and the difference in in like their quality of life by being grass-fed versus being confined fed 
the choice is pretty clear that grass fed is the way to go. Uh, and so what we want to do as a company is um, our mission is to transform meat is basically to provide you meat that you don't have to feel guilty about. You know, unfortunately that space it's growing. And, and, and I think if we, if we looked at 20 years from now, I think it's going to be hopefully a, if we do our jobs, well, it'll be a majority of the meat consumed in this country is meat raised right. Um, but that's not where we are today and it's not growing fast enough. How, how then when you, when you're partnering with farmers and also on the, on the supply side, how do you also think about like product quality? And since of course you're, you're not owning your own distribution. Here's the thing. I think that it's a common misconception amongst entrepreneurs, uh, especially those who have taken a lot of funding to believe that you can do it better than a different company. And oftentimes it's like, well, like we need to do our own distribution because like our our employees will care more. And it's like, well, that I mean, that's kind of true. But we believe in a model more similar to Toyota, which is like, how do we hire the best vendors we can find and then hold their feet to the fire in terms of quarterly business reviews and like, let's improve this and, um, you know, like telling people what needs to be improved and then kind of uh, working with them to improve far faster than starting your own anything. Uh, and where a lot of these companies have failed, if you look at like, you know, Blue Aprons trading at $43 million or something, um, is they spent a ton of money on building out their own infrastructure. Now, sometimes like in the Blue Apron case, it's like, well, we had to because like nobody was chopping vegetables and putting them in a, in, in bags. Like, okay. Um, but, you know, they they may have completely had to think about things differently if they didn't have funding. It's like, oh, we can't chop it. We need to send you the whole vegetable or something. Like it, it, it's a, it, when you're not constrained, you start to just think that you do things better than other people. And that's not the case. So, you know, you asking the question, like, how do you keep quality of product if you don't own it? I actually think by not owning it, you have a much better chance of having a high quality product. How does this relate? Just think about, you know, obviously the product that you're delivered, whether you should own it or not versus not own it. And as well as in in custom made when you were there, um, being VC backed versus butcher box, which is of course uh, bootstrapped. Think about all these things when it comes to your own kind of angel investing philosophy in, in consumer startups, what has to kind of be right um, in your mind in order, in order for you to be interested? Yeah, I, well, I, I'll say this, but I, I, I don't want to encourage a lot of inbound because um, I am trying to sit on the sidelines right now in terms of investing in other companies. Uh, so I used to like really scrutinize my investments um, early on. Kind of, I, I made my first angel investment in like uh, 2011 um, and like really like dig into everything and then write a check. And it turns out that like the things that I like kind of reluctantly wrote a check to are, are the things that like had a 7x return. And the things that I'm like, oh, this is going to work, like didn't return anything. And what I've learned is that like I'm not very good at... Um, um, and so I think it's more about managing a pipeline. Like how do you, how do you get invited into interesting deals? Um, and then just saying yes. Just like write the check. Uh, you figure out an amount that you... Um, are okay uh, losing. Um, and then I just write a check basically to everybody. 
again, I'm not doing that right now, but that I don't have a very good angel investing philosophy, which is actually why I've now allocated more capital to um, becoming an LP in funds. Okay. Because I just prefer someone else to do it for me. So while I'm very anti-VC, I do invest in the uh, anti-VC for certain businesses. I do invest in the asset class. Why then, if you are anti-VC for certain businesses, what what types of VC funds kind of uh, piques your interest? Is, is there like particular like categories or or they could be a generalist or um, in terms of what they invest in? I tend to invest, well, actually in all of them. And this is true, largely true for the investments I make as well. I tend to invest in like people I think are good operators, like people who um, I've seen out there for the past 10 years, like, you know, just doing good work. Uh, those are the types of places I like to invest in. That's great. That's great. And I, I, I remember you mentioned back to ButcherBox that um, you're also, I guess, have plans to go into retail. Why, um, why go into retail at this point? Uh, 92% of the meat uh, purchased in the United States is sold at retail. So, well, 92% of the meat that's going to be prepared at home is sold at retail. Obviously, there's food service as well, uh, which we could also try to go into. We want to fish where the fish are, right? So even though COVID dramatically changed the numbers in terms of how many people were getting D to C direct to their door meat, uh, the number is still pretty small. And, uh, so we, we, we believe like what we're trying to build here is a beloved brand that's known for doing things right. And I don't think that that needs to just be an online experience. I think if you want to be a brand, well, the place where most brands are purchased is, uh, the retail store. And if you think about it, there's actually not many brands in meat. Like the number of brands in meat that people can name is generally less than five, um, so it's a massive space with, I believe, quite a large white space of having your own brand. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Personally, well, it's kind of like professionally and personally, but um, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. Cliff notes on that one is um, everybody has a thermostat uh, of joy that they allow themselves to feel. So let's just say your thermostat's set at 72 degrees. What happens is um, if you if things are going really well in life, um, you know, new kid, business is doing great, you're feeling in shape, like things are going great. Uh, if you go above the 72 degrees, you start to sabotage your life to bring yourself back down to 72. And so the book is all about the practice of like noticing that that's happening and also reinforcing to yourself that you deserve to be happy and you deserve more joy. So you can go from 72 degrees to 73 degrees to 75 degrees. And uh, that's been personally very um, good for me because um, I had a lot of stuff uh, go really well. Um, not only did I have a business that like took off beyond my wildest dreams, um, I also was blessed to have, uh, I, I was a year into the business and I had, uh, identical twin girls born, which is a one in a hundred chance. Um, and you know, I just felt like all of this amazing stuff happening and kind of freaked out. Like it was, it, it, it was hard to appreciate that. And I started to self-sabotage rather than like being okay in the moment and telling myself I needed more or I deserved more joy. Um, on the professional side, man, I read a ton of books. Um, well, this is like a personal professional one as well, but, um, the 15 commitments of conscious leadership is really good. 
uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, this idea of conscious leadership, which is like awakening to your triggers and the things that like pull you out of like love and curiosity and put you into fear and anxiety. And uh, that's a really good one. And then uh, on the like real business business book, I mean, you know, the, the whole like Jim Collins, good to great. And the other one built to last and the other one uh, are great. Um, uh, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a ton of books that are worth reading. No, I appreciate that. Um, the big leap. We haven't had that one, um, mentioned before the podcast. So, uh, very original, Mike, very original. Like, yeah. Excited as add that to the book list. And the, on the on the leadership side, how do you feel that your leadership style might have might have changed ever since from we were first um, CEO at Custom Made all the way up till now? So Custom Made, I had a co-founder um, and a board and uh, a lot of pressure, and didn't really have the confidence. I was twenty six and like didn't um, didn't necessarily have the confidence that I knew what I was supposed to do or knew what I was doing. My tendency at uh, now is I'm a heart-based leader. My goal, my like part of my job is to like love my people, love my employees, love my customers, love our vendors, like just love. Um, and so I'm a, I, I lead with my heart. Um, I am oftentimes uh, blamed for being overly generous or um, you know too idealistic or you know, whatever. It, and I just, I just believe that people actually like work. I, it used to be that you come to the office every day, but people like you, you work more than you do like, like spending time with your family. People are making an enormous sacrifice to be working for me. Um, and I try to honor that and feel that every day rather than just like try to extract from them because that's just like not how it works. I used to be more of a fear leader. Um, you know, my co-founder and I would walk around and be like, hey, you coming in on Saturday? And like, you better. There was a lot more fear. And I think, frankly, that was our fear that we were just like pushing on everybody else. Um, and that doesn't work. I've, I'm I'm a big believer in just opening my heart and um, being a heart-based leader. Appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, well, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. And there you have it. It was a pleasure time with Mike. I hope you all enjoyed this one. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So what do you feel like, you know, maybe only the SPV side of things and also on the emerging managers side, what do you think that they maybe struggle or, or, or have or have like a hard time with? Yeah, so I think with the angel side, um, you know, a lot of a lot of angels will be investing directly um, and you know, some are unfamiliar with the concept of an SPV. Um, you know, syndicating is a concept that's used in the financial markets, whether, you know, you're banks syndicating loans or banks syndicating investments. Um, it's a really, it's a really good way to, you know, share your network, uh, deal flow with your network, um, you know, get into those really competitive deals by having those higher minimum tickets, pulling those funds together. Um, so I think, you know, for angels, the concept of SPVs and syndicating is relatively still new. And, you know, there's a, a large market where uh, I think they would significantly benefit. Uh, you're a able to also monetize off that deal flow as well. So you can charge carry, which is, you know, a, a portion of the profits upon an exit scenario, or you can charge fees. So, you know, 
finding an opportunity, trying to fundraise for the deal is a lot of hard work. And sometimes being compensated for that um, does definitely help um, incentivize uh, the deal. For emerging fund managers, it's a really great way to start building your track record. So, you know, one when you're talking to LPs or, you know, investors, one of their strategies is, you know, um, how do I get some co-investment opportunities uh, or direct investments? And so building that relationship, showing your deal flow um, allows you to build those relationships with those LPs to ultimately invest into your funds. Um, Additionally, it's a really good way to kind of show, you know, your track record of, you know, the companies that you've invested where the ability to fundraise, getting access to those top deals, and then going out to the market and, you know, showing a track record of, you know, your resume. Um, so it definitely paints a better picture than, you know, saying, you know, one day I want to be a VC fund manager and not having anything to back it up with. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And and for anyone that's listening that doesn't quite understand what an SPV is, how I, how I think about it as well is that you're almost raising a VC fund, but on like one deal. Um, so you're raising from other people, but it's just solely on one deal. So you get like maybe an allocation from a company. Um, let's say it's like a 200 K allocation. Maybe you put up 20 K in that 200 K allocation, and then it's your job to go out and, uh, and to actually fulfill, um, the rest of the round with other investors. And then, um, as Gabriel said, you can, uh, charge, um, a carry from it. So that's like a percentage of the profits. So that typically is around like 20%. Is that roughly right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, SPVs or a special purpose vehicle is a legal entity that's incorporated. Um, and venture, it's predominantly used to pool funds together, invest into a single asset or a company. Um, and with that, you have the functionalities of commercializing some of that um the, the legal entity. So, you know, as you mentioned, earning some carry, earning some upfront fees, uh, and really compensating your hard work for, you know, fundraising. If you are loving the show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. I'm also doing some more events. So you'll also be the first one to receive information about those. 